Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Today the goal, because I know sometimes, have you ever left a sermon um, where you went, what on earth was he talking about? Just last week. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I wasn't here last week. That's, that's good news. <laughs> the, the goal today is that, um, that what, what I just said, is that to see that God rarely does miracles apart from human involvement. Okay, that means us. That means us. Acts chapter 9. Now, we, we know Acts chapter 9 um, as the conversion of the Apostle Paul, the guy who's written the majority of the New Testament, two-thirds of the New Testament. And his name is Saul. That's how, we, uh, that's how he is introduced to us in the book of Acts. Now, theologians try to point to, when we look at his conversion, that his conversion is not a modern conversion of the way that we look at um, a conversion. So we, we look at a conversion of somebody who was maybe an atheist, or maybe they were in a totally different type of religion, and they are arrested by God. They have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and they realize that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. And 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, and he talks about it like a veil. Um, he, and he's talking about there's Jews that are reading the law, and he said there's a veil over their eyes, and that veil needs to be lifted. And, and that's also why the scripture says that the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. But for those who believe, it is the power of God. And so that's why when, when people get saved, it's like, oh my goodness, how did I miss this? And what we see with, with Paul is that he was a Jew. And then after he was saved, he's still a Jew. So you see, he, he is converted in the sense that he now knows that veil was lifted. And actually, we're going to see that there were blinders on his eyes that were scales that when Ananias prayed for him, they fell off his eyes. They, they were dropped, and now, in his blindness, he was made whole to see. And so, this conversion is a conversion, but in, in a modern sense, it's a little bit different. Does that make sense? So, here we go. Meanwhile, because there's always a meanwhile in God's world, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found uh, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, now this might mess some of you up, especially people who know their Bible really well, but there's a good chance that Paul was married at, at some point. And so some of you are going, what? No, he wasn't married. Yeah, well, to be a part um, so part of these papers is showing that he actually voted for um, the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In order to vote, in order to be a part of this, he had to be a rabbi. And, and according to the Talmud, back in like the second century, we know that you had to be at least 40 years of age 
and you had to be married. A Jewish man, by the time they were 18, there was a high expectation for you to be married. Now, we also know at that time, people died at an early age, and divorce was quite regular as well. So there is a very good chance that he had been married early on in his life. And that is why when we see that he was getting papers, he was actually there at the first stoning. He was a very powerful Jewish leader. He was young. He was working up in the ranks quickly. So here, this young man getting papers to actually arrest Christians, breathing murderous threats out there. He is a danger to the Christian world like they had never experienced up to this point. In verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This man was a dangerous dangerous man to the Christian world. This would be essentially like going to a judge and getting approval for a warrant to go and start rounding up all of the Christians. And the Jewish leaders, they were happy with his zealotry. He was working up in the ranks and he was doing it quickly. And we actually know in later of Paul's writings, he talks about this. And he talks about how he was outranking everybody and he was smarter than everybody. He made sure that they knew this. But now, this man, who had everything going for him, he was a Jew of Jews, he was working his way to be the leader of leaders, has now not eaten, he has not drank anything for three days. He is blind, and he is a disaster. What is he going to tell his family? What is he going to tell his co-workers? What is he, he was supposed to bring all these people in. Now what? His life has been totally thrown, messed up, and turned upside down. This guy is a disaster. I'm going to start calling him Paul now instead of Saul. It's just going to be easier for all of us. But Paul is an unlikely union. He is an unlikely person for God to bring in as a Christian. So Paul's on his way to Damascus, and in that moment, he had this encounter with God, and his life was changed forever, an unlikely union. When I think of unlikely unions, I think of um, uh, an experience I had at the Mall of America. And, you know, I used to manage uh, the restaurant, or was with a managing team of uh, Tucci Benuch, and and a great restaurant, not there anymore, but man, we had a, a great time. And, and my experiences at the Mall of America were so bizarre. That, that is a bizarre place. You have people from all over the world coming, and you just see the strangest things. And I saw some just bizarre, bizarre, bizarre things. You just kind of start looking up. You just don't want to look anybody in the eye anymore because you just see some really strange things. And uh, one of the strange things I saw um, in, in terms of an unlikely union, uh, one of my hosts was, he was this gamer guy, really long hair. Everything about him was, was I'm, a, I'm a video game guy. You know, that's all he did, and that's all he wanted to talk about. Um, and so he was great. He was so good with the customers. Now, he was 
exceptionally short. And so at our host stand, we actually had a stool for him to be on so he could be there. And he was so pleasant. He was so great to be around. Customers loved him. And it was, uh, in, it was towards the evening, and so we were dying down. And uh, there were three people. It was a, a mom and a dad and then a daughter. Now, the daughter was probably like 6'8". I mean, she was just towering. She was towering over me. And so you can imagine how... Uh, she was towering over our host. And so we expected, okay, it's just going to be a, a late night dine-in. And so how many? And the parents stood off, and she walked up alone, and she looked, she didn't look at me at all. She looked right at the host, and she said, look at me. And, you know, we're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, she said, look at me. I, I'm never going to have normal kids. Look at you. You're never going to have normal kids. I think that the two of us, we could be a thing. And <laughs> what do you say? And he, he looked at me like I'm going to rescue him, and I just patted him on the shoulder, and I said, we'll see you later, buddy. <laughs> oh, I'm, you know, and I'm dying. This is just the greatest thing ever. And can you imagine, like, if you, they were walking down the, the mall corridors together, you would say to yourself, this is an unlikely union, right? This is, and, and all the men in here say, yeah, I could, amen, right? Yeah, my, my wife, and it's pretty much an unlikely union, right? But I, I was looking at this, and this is, this to me speaks of one of the most unlikely unions, and just to burst some bubbles, it didn't work out, okay? It didn't work out. Yeah, oh, <laughs> but... That's what we're looking at with Paul. That's how much of an unlikely union that was here. That God saved a guy that nobody expected. And we're going to see how unexpected that is even for the disciples and the followers of Jesus. The birth of a movement shows the impetuousness of God. What seems to us as impossible, what seems to us as crazy, rash, brazen, God sees it as a way to remind us that he is all-powerful, that he can do anything that he desires. He can take a tiny, weak Jewish sect in the Middle East that's underneath Roman rule, and he can change the world. He can do anything that he wants. The birth of a movement is seeing how the church started, not by the power of man, but by the Spirit of God. We started uh, the, at, when we started this series, we started with at the very end of Luke, because Luke wrote this and Acts. So it's, like, it's almost like when you read the end of it, it's like a continuation of the works of God. So week one, we looked foundationally at the grassroots movement, first understanding the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. There is a mystical union that we call the Trinity. In this divine union of the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. This is why when we pray, we say, in the name of Jesus. In week two, we looked at Jesus' followers and we see how he uses the most common and normal people. He uses us. And we said, amen. 
Amen. We are happy because God uses us, and when he died on the cross in the Holy of Holies, we know that that fabric was split where the, where the Holy Spirit would dwell, and no longer is he there just only for the priests. He is now out for humans, for all of us. These are promises fulfilled by God through Jesus. In week three, we looked at Peter and John where they healed this beggar at the gate beautiful, where God continues to do miraculous things in different generations by the same Spirit. He continues to do things, and we are praying and we are believing to see God do amazing things even now in our own generation and for the generations of our younger people. Amen? Week four, we find that every Christian has God-given gifts. Some are different, some are stronger than others, but we are, we are showed clearly that there are 22 gifts in the New Testament. They were not meant to be an exhaustive list of gifts, that there are actually more. In Exodus uh, 31, we see this guy named Bezalel where God's spirit came on him so he could build the temple. He, had, he was given this gift and everybody around knew that the spirit of God was on him. In uh, Timothy 4.14, Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you. And then he says in 2 Timothy, rekindle the gift that God put inside you. Almost like maybe he saw in Timothy's life, like maybe some of those gifts were starting to lay dormant. And Paul is saying, stir up those gifts that God has put in you. 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. So it's not about serving ourselves. God has placed gifts in us to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Week five, Acts 3.19, repent then and turn. So it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's now turn. And the example that Peter gave in a, in a sermon with this is he said, I don't want you just to feel bad that you crucified Jesus because Jesus meant for that to happen anyway. But now we want you to actually turn to him. So don't feel bad that you killed an innocent man. Now turn to him. And that's what we talked about the last time. So that puts us right now at week six, the birth of a movement, an unlikely union. So as we move on in the book of Acts, we start seeing a change. We see that all this excitement, all this fun happening, right? Everybody wants to be a part of a grassroots movement that all this is happening, we're cheering, we're sharing, we're celebrating, but now we start to see persecution coming. We start to see all of these disciples that were really excited, now they're being dispersed and moved over and moved around to different cities because persecution is coming, jail is coming, there is now beatings happening. Things start getting real at this moment. There's a famous quote from Tertullian where, where he says, the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the saints. The church has always grown and prospered under persecution. It has always grown. It has always prospered under persecution. We've had it really easy, friends. We've had it really easy for a long time. And when we see persecution coming and when we see threats to things that we believe, when we see 
pressures to not go ways or even guilt, people trying to shame us for believing who God is and his promises and ways of life that are gonna benefit us, we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because what we see when it comes to persecution is that we thank the Lord that we were actually able to withstand persecution. Even though it's not, it's not comfortable, it's not easy, but there is something that happens when persecution comes, not only in ourselves, but others around us. And we see that uh, when they would collect and, and bring in Christians into Colosseums, people were actually saved because the Christians would not deny Christ. People saw the tenacity. People saw there is something real there and I want it. There is something that happens. I have uh, shared about this before when it comes to something uh, they call typology in scripture. Typology is a type of type of Christ. So for example, we'll look at um, Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Um, he was in the belly of the whale for three days. And uh, like Christ was resurrected on the third day, Jonah was thrown on the beach to go and prophesy to Nineveh. He was a type of Christ. Um, Isaac and Jesus, they were the only beloved sons of their fathers. They were both offered as a sacrifice. Both carried the wood for their own sacrifice. Both were bound. Both willingly allowed themselves to be offered as a sacrifice. Isaac was a type of Christ. And there's Moses. Moses and Jesus. There was a king or a pharaoh that both tried to kill them as, as babies. Um, they were both hidden to preserve life. Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses where Joseph was uh, adopted Jesus. Moses went from the prince to a pauper and Jesus went from God to man. Both were saved. Both saved a woman at the well. Moses be uh, became a shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Moses' mission was to redeem Israel from slavery of, of Egypt. And Jesus' mission is to redeem mankind from slavery to sin. And what I'd like to propose to you today <clears throat> is that we are a type of Paul or a type of Saul. We were lost. We were going the wrong direction. We were in darkness and now we can see. Like Paul, we want to be good people. Paul was being the best Jew that he could be. But he was still going the wrong direction. He was misguided, and many of us have been misguided in our own ways. Like Paul, we may not have the most stellar record. It was very embarrassing for him to have to say that he was there to approve the first stoning of the Christian. That's why he called himself the lowest of all the apostles. <clears throat> like Paul, we can do something bad but believe wholeheartedly that we have done something righteous. Like Paul, who did something bad, he was also forgiven, and we, like Paul, have been forgiven. Like Paul, though different, we are all products of our, the environment that we were raised in. Paul was the product of an environment that he was raised in. But even the way that he was raised, he had to make changes in his life. I think for many of us, we 
can always look back at, well, that's what my mom and dad did, or that's who, this is how this person raised me. And we make that an excuse not to make changes in our lives. And we can look at, at Paul here and the shift of salvation is a mighty shift. And, you know, I think some of us can look back at our lives today and we can look back and go, wow, God has really done a work in me. Amen? God has really done a work. Like Paul was blinded, we have been blinded also by this world. Telling us how to live, what our priorities should be, telling us what our sole purpose and life should be what it means for you to be successful. And Paul had to redefine that for himself. In those three days of being blinded, alone, trying to figure things out, it, he did some real soul searching during that time. How dare God save Paul? And if we're looking at this as a type, well, then how dare God save me, right? But he did. But he did. In Acts 9, 26, we find that Paul was trying to get to know Christians. And he, he got saved, and it, it says that after Ananias went in and prayed, and um, here, let me just, let me just read it for you. This is starting at verse 10. In Damascus, there were disciples named Ananias, and the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said to brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, food he regained his strength. After this had happened, it says that he already started to go and preach. That's crazy. He didn't go there and and say, okay, now I need to, you know, go to seminary and do all the things that I, I need to do. He already went to start preaching. But then something happened. All of the Christians, and I would have been there too, saying, don't trust him. This guy, he's smart. What he's doing is he's infiltrating, and he's going to find out where all the networks are, where all the Christians are meeting, and then next thing you know, we are going to be raided, and then our movement is done. And so it's not a surprise. I mean, Ananias is already arguing with God, saying, yeah, I don't think you've got this right, Lord. Maybe you should kind of rethink what you're doing. But Ananias was obedient, and he did exactly what God 
told him to do. So here, Paul is preaching in the synagogues. He's going and doing the things that, that he knows what to do now. People are looking at him saying, hold on, how, why are you preaching this? This is, this is crazy. And nobody will associate with him. Now he has, he's on his own. The Jews don't want him around, and now the Christians don't want him around. So now he's totally left on his own. As we launch into Christmas, I want to remind us that, like Paul, we are an unlikely union with Christ. But God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So just as we are an unlikely union with God, we are also an unlikely candidate to be his associates. So I want you to think about this. So some of you might be like Paul. Maybe in your life you just had a radical shift and change and God saved you in a mighty way. But there's some of you here that are like Ananias. See, did you notice that in this miracle that God provided, that number one, they're answering the prayers of the saints. Of this birth of this movement, they are praying for their fellow Jews to come to salvation and knowledge of who Jesus is. Okay? There are so many people a part of this miracle. The body of Christ is already praying. God comes down, does this miraculous touch, and now he calls this Ananias, some guy who's praying in his prayer closet. How many Ananiases do we have in this place today? Are you ready for the Lord to come and to speak to you? And are you ready to be obedient to what he's speaking to you? Look at this. This, this miraculous miracle that happened was not just God coming down. It's God using other people. Then take a look at this. So there's this guy. His name was Joseph. And I, you know, during this time, people love to rename people. So his name is Joseph, and he's this Levite guy. And he, he's a, it's almost like having a, you know, somebody around that they've got kind of a, a quirky sense of humor. There's something about him, and everybody kind of gives him a new name. Well, they named this guy Barnabas. And they, they named him that because they called him the son of encouragement. Have you ever known somebody, like, they are just, every time you see them, they're so over the top and encouraging. You're like, oh, I can't even talk to them right now. They're just going to encourage me. I don't want to be encouraged right now. You know, I think this guy was like so over the top encouraging. It was, it was just, it would just be like, oh my goodness, I'm not in the mood to talk to Barnabas today. Ugh, you know? And here comes Barnabas. And so look, look at what happens. It says that in Acts 9.27, so here's Paul, rejected by the Jews and the elders, rejected by the Christians because they look at him as, as a danger and a threat. And then we see in Acts 9.27, but Barnabas, but the son of encouragement. Man, put your name in there for a second. Put your name in there for a second, but Dale. Could, could you, don't you want to be that in somebody's life? Come on. As a Christian, this is what we want to be in somebody's life, but Dale kept praying for me. Oh, but Dale kept calling. There's a, 
you know, I, year, years ago, and it was just, I, I shared the story about the, the restaurant that I had worked in. I was working in the same place, and at that time, I was I'm a crazy person. I was driving from Hutchinson all the way to the Mall of America. So you can imagine, uh, my joke was that my car was saved. For those that commute a lot, you know that you just do a lot of praying and preaching in a car. And I was driving, and there was a, I think it was Focus on the Family or something, and I listened to this testimony of this man whose life was totally ruined. Um, you think of all forms of debauchery in life that, that one could go through, and this man had gone through it. And no matter where this man went, there was one person that always found out where he was and would give him encouragement. He was, there was nothing that resembled Christ in this man's life. He was outdoing everything immoral and wrong that you could possibly do. Year after year, he would get cards from this man where this man would just say, I love you, I'm praying for you, and I'm thinking about you. And at some point, life catches up with you. And some of you have seen this in other people's lives where all of a sudden, when the bottom falls out and there's nothing there, all of a sudden, the ways that you once rejected, you start to see the wisdom And this man was at the low of his lows. And all of a sudden, he gets a card from this man once again, year after year after year. And this time, he sought him out after all these years. This man would all of a sudden be walking and run into him in, in the midst of this man's sin. And in the midst of all of this, he gets on the phone and they go out for coffee And the man who had been living in such sin, who had been chased and followed all of these years, he looked at him and he said, if your God is as faithful as you, I want him. I want him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. But Barnabas, we see that God using his miraculous touch on Paul, and it's so easy for us to look at and go, wow, I just wish that happened to me or that happened to all these people, but look at how God orchestrated all of the miraculous things. I want you to take a minute Has God ever done something miraculous around you, somebody you know or with you? And then think of all the people that were involved in that. Think of the people, the prayer warriors that have been praying for you all of this time. Some of you in here, we've been praying and believing for things that have not yet happened. And we're still praying and believing for them, aren't we? Because we believe that God will do miraculous things. The birth of a movement is exciting. I, I am believing for us to see radical things happen in our community, in the Northwest suburbs, in, in Minnesota, and, and throughout the United States. I just, I, wanna, I don't want to miss it. And in the same time, we look and we see what God is doing 
And he still continues to do miraculous things today, and he uses the common people like you and I. You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.